have a Bible, open up to Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. In the yard of a little church in a small town in Germany stands a statue of a lamb. At the very base of the lamb is just this simple inscription, a memorial to the crushed lamb. You see, after World War II, a group of men were repairing some of the damage on the roof that this church sustained from the war. One of the workmen had lost his footing, tripped, and fell over the side. Quickly, the other men ran down the stairs, calling out for help for the town folks to to find their friend still alive, hopefully, although they knew that his chances were slim. Finally, reaching the ground, they found their friend moaning in pain, but very much alive. Then they realized that the man was laying on top what seemed to be some kind of cushion substance of some sort. When they lifted him to his feet, they realized what had happened. A lamb had been feeding, grazing on the grass by the church in the exact spot where he fell, and the lamb broke the man's fall and saved his life. As you can imagine, the lamb was dead, but the man was alive. He was so grateful that he had himself erected that statue of the little lamb on those church grounds. This man uniquely understood the idea of a sacrificial lamb being offered in his place. A lamb would die so that he could live. One of the key images of Christianity is of the sacrificed lamb. And the New Testament Testament makes it undoubtedly clear that Jesus himself is that sacrificial lamb. One of the greatest statements of this in the Bible comes in the Gospel of John, where John the Baptist, looking to Jesus, says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In this one sentence, John the Baptist describes who Jesus is and what He does. Regarding who He is, He is the spotless, perfect substitute regarding what He does He is the sacrifice who dies in place of all those who would by faith put their trust in Him. Now, sacrifice is a word we continue to use in our culture, but we use it in a very different way. We kind of just mean I'm I'm giving something up, whatever might be, my time, my convenience, or whatever, for the good of some greater cause. It's usually a metaphor, but in in antiquity, sacrifices were a part of common life. It was either as a gift in terms of offering of food, and again, being suburbanites, really removed from our food chain, we don't understand the reality that every time we eat, something has to die. And in ancient culture, that was very clear. Every time they shared a meal, they knew something died so they could live. And we're really far from that. I remember when my wife was telling me a story when she was growing up in New Orleans. They were having dinner, and their cousins had come over, and at the dinner time, they were having chicken, and she's eating a drumstick and just says, wouldn't this be gross if this was really chicken? (laughs) It just takes a bite out of it, right? We are removed from the fact that animals die so we could live. And in ancient culture, that was often part of the sacrifice. It was a gift to show hospitality. But it was also part of sacrifice to atone for offenses, to make up, to cover, to uh, propitiate sin. The shedding of blood, the, the death, the kind of grotesque nature of the sacrifice. The person bringing the sacrifice would be there watching the animal slaughtered. The whole uh, gravity of the situation was to bring upon them the seriousness of their offense. Something they had done had required this animal to die in our place. So, sacrifice was a common understanding in antiquity. 
And that's what we're doing this particular week, this particular morning. We are looking at the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Now, in your Bibles, probably the first chapter we start to get a sense of a sacrificial lamb for us is found in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham and his son Isaac go out to Mount Moriah, and this is what it said. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, of all the rites and the rituals of the Jews, the one that centered on the Lamb was Passover. This is the week of Passover in the Jewish calendar. This is Passover week. And of all their rituals, this one focused upon the Lamb. Now, why is that? Well, Passover, if you recall, goes back to the time when the children of Israel were in captivity in Egypt. And it was a tenth plague that God was bringing upon the nation of Egypt to release His people. They hardened their hearts, would not let His people go. And so the Lord said, here's my tenth and final plague. I'm sending the death angel. And every firstborn child will die. There's only one provision. And this would happen whether you were a part of the Egyptian household or if you were in a Jewish household or any other household, the firstborn would surely die with one provision. The death angel, if it came to your house and saw the blood of the lamb, a sacrificed lamb, and the blood wiped on the two posts and the lintel. By the way, as New Testament theologians, we look back at that as when you put blood here and blood here and you put blood on the lintel, it drops to the bottom. We see that as the four points of the cross. They didn't know that at the time. But the Lord said when the death angel sees the blood on the doorposts, he will pass over that home and the firstborn shall live. And so ever since that celebration or that, that evening, the Jewish people have celebrated Passover. And all of it was a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ Himself would do, shedding His blood so the angel of death that should claim us passes over. This is exactly why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Passover, it's all about the lamb. And at this annual celebration in antiquity, there were many lambs slaughtered. You could count to about a quarter of a million lambs slaughtered in this week alone. But there was always one lamb, one special lamb, the, the Passover lamb for the nation, the lamb of whom his blood the high priest would take in the Holy of Holies. Exodus 12 tells us that this day would be the 10th of Nisan, the day to choose the Lamb. So on this afternoon of what we call Palm Sunday, this afternoon, the high priest would go out of the city through the northern gate, the Damascus gates. Here's a picture of what those look like. So that's the Damascus gate there. You see right now a lot of crowded, and there it is in the evening time. The high priest on what we call Palm Sunday would go out to the northern gate, the Damascus gate, and go to the north to inspect the flocks in Bethlehem to find the Passover lamb. And when he would find the Passover lamb, the perfect lamb, or what he thought was the perfect lamb, he'd bring it back to the temple. Now, on the Passover that we have recorded in the Gospels is a unique Passover because this was what's called a sabbatical Passover. In other words, they celebrated Passover every year, but in the Jewish calendar, every seven years is what they call the sabbatical year. They would take a break. They would let the land go uh, uncultivated, to let the land rest. 
And then every seven cycles of seven years, so seven by seven is 49, every fifth year, the seventh by seventh after that, was what they called the Jubilee year. And in the Jubilee year, all debts were completely forgiven. It was an amazing time, an amazing way that they ran their economy. It is believed that this Sunday, and the Jews believe on that year, that Jubilee Passover year, the Messiah would come. And that was the year that we have here recorded in the Gospels. And at this Passover, Josephus, the Roman and histor uh, Jewish historian, recorded that there could be a million people in the city of Jerusalem. Now, my wife and I had been in Jerusalem several years ago on a high holy week, and literally overnight, 500,000 people would just flock into the city, and the whole population would just swell. It was a social distance nightmare. The population would swell overnight, and you were just crammed in there. And then that would be the case every Passover. All around the city of Jerusalem, pilgrims would show up anticipating the beginning of the festivities because this was a time of celebration. God's deliverance would be coming. And so they would be ready for the parade and the procession. And on that Passover, a vast entourage of priests would come out of the temple. Now, so I have a picture. This is a model, obviously, because the temple no longer exists. Uh, that's Herod's temple there. And this wall here is the east, so we're staying on the east side. Now, unlike in the West and modern times where we orient everything to the north, in the Middle East, everything's oriented to the east. So the temple faces east, so here's east, and then there's west, and then south, and then north. A vast entourage of priests would leave the temple and go out here on the west side, let me the next slide, right here on the west side, here's east, and go up to the northern gate. So that's how they would walk it out. And what would happen is the priests would line up all along this street heading up to the northern gate, two by two on either side of the road, either side of the street, and they would hold palm trees or palm, excuse me, palm branches in their hands, and maybe you've seen these kind of videos, but they would rock back and forth. That was a common practice of the priests. They would rock back and forth, and as the priests lined up, the high priest would go out the northern gate and look for the perfect lamb to bring back that would ultimately be the sacrificial lamb for the nation. So outside the city, you'd have the high priest and his assistants looking through all the flocks, one year old and younger of Bethlehem, the sheep, for the one lamb that they were going to use. Inside the city, hundreds and thousands of pilgrims would show up, palm branches in hand, greenery everywhere all over the city. They would put the palm branches outside of wherever friends or family homes that they were staying in, waiting for the procession. The eager priests awaiting the return of the high priest. And when the high priest entered through the Damascus gate, they would begin to shout, along with the Passover lamb, they would begin to shout, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means to save now. And when the high priest, or excuse me, when the priest began to shout, upon hearing that, all the pilgrims would come out, grab their palm branches, take their places in the street, and start waving their palm branches and singing out and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. It was a festive time. But while the high priest was out on the north gate, just outside the city, something was happening, Matthew 21 tells us, on the east side of the city. Matthew 21 tells us that Jesus was riding down the Mount of Olives on the east side of the city, winding His way down around to come up around the north side of the city. And so here's the picture. This is a, a modern picture, obviously. 
This is the Mount of Olives right here. Jesus would be coming down this hill. And in the distance, you can see where the temple used to stand. Right now, there is the Dome of the Rock. It's the third, I believe, the third most holiest site of, of Islam. But currently, it stands exactly on the spot where the temple, the Jewish temple, once stood. And so Jesus would be coming down this on the eastern side and then make his way around the north of the city. Here's a, another picture. So there's the Mount Olives right here. This is the southern wall of the temple complex. Jesus would come down here, make his way around to the north, and then come into the Damascus Gate. Now, people have heard of who Jesus is. They heard that, and many of them believe that He was the promised Messiah. And so you can imagine, as they see Jesus coming down, making His way to the north gate, about to come into the city, you can imagine their excitement. As they start to bring out branches, and they start throwing their cloaks before Him, which is a symbol of submission to the authority of the Messiah, and they start yelling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest! As Jesus draws near the Damascus gate, you can imagine the chanting just cascading all the way down, down to the Temple Mount. You can imagine all those priests that are lined up there, bowing back and forth, rocking back and forth, waiting for the high priest to come in with the Passover lamb. They begin to hear the shouting, and they wonder, well, what's going on? Because usually they're the ones that start the shouting, and then the people come out, but the people start shouting, so they maybe they missed it, right? There's no walkie-talkie. They don't know what's going on. So they start shouting as well, and they're bowing back and forth, and they look up the street for the high priest and the Passover lamb, and what do they see? Matthew 21, 8 and 9 records for us. They look down and they see Jesus riding on a donkey. Now, just you may not remember this, but according to Zechariah 9, that's the way the Son of God, the Messiah, was supposed to come in to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So they look down, looking, waiting for the high priest and the Passover lamb, and they see Jesus, see Jesus walking into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. And by this time, the crowd is frenzied. They're singing Hosanna. They're crying out Hosanna. And the priests are doing the same. But this is not the way it's supposed to go because the high priest hadn't come in yet with the, with the Passover lamb. And so we get to Luke chapter 19 and verse 40, excuse me, in verse 39. Some of the chief priests run up to Jesus and say, Rabbi, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. This is not the way it's supposed to go. The high priest hasn't come in with the Passover lamb yet. And so Jesus says in verse 40, if these are silent, the very rocks themselves would cry out. What a moment. The real Passover lamb, the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, had come. So on the 10th of Nisan, that Sunday, the high priest went out of Jerusalem to find the Passover lamb. And almost at the same time, at the same day, the lamb that all Passover lambs pointed to was walking through the gate. But it's the days between when the Passover lamb was chosen and when it was sacrificed, the lamb would have been inspected. You see in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, the Lord says, the lamb has to be without blemish, perfect in every way. So the days after the Passover lamb is chosen to when he's finally sacrificed were days of inspection which is, by the way, why Passion Week takes up a majority of the gospel narratives, specifically the, the, the day Tuesday. Thirteen percent of all the gospel narratives focus on that one day alone, because it was the day, unbeknownst to the, the, the scribes and the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, God was using them to inspect this Passover lamb. Which is why, by the way, last week we had the uh, office staff 
post-it Saturday morning, uh, a, a document I put together called Walking with Jesus Through Holy Week, and it's on our Instagram feed. Um, it is, so every day there's a document on one column, the day of the week, in one column, all the chapters of scriptures in the gospel that talk about the events of that week. So as a family devotional, or you can do it on your own, you can read through everything that's happening every day. And it began last night because the Jewish day, unlike our day, doesn't start and end at midnight. It starts and ends at, at sunset, right? So it started last night, and it goes on through the remainder of the week. Um, Kendall told me you can find it on our website, on our website slash Holy Week. Is anyone, Kendall, are you here? I don't know. So anyway, you can call the church office. Well, it was this day on Tuesday that the lamb was being inspected, and the lamb was being inspected of, inspected of three things. They were challenging and inspecting his authority. They were challenging and inspecting his, inspecting his integrity, and finally, his theology. So Luke chapter 20, verses 2 through 8, we see that the priests, the scribes, and the elders were questioning his authority. I'll take it from verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Okay, so let's explain a little bit of what's going on here. So uh, you may be familiar from other gospel accounts. When Jesus comes into the triumphal entry, he goes right to the temple mount. That's where the lamb's supposed to go. And then when he gets to the, the temple, you remember our study of Mark's gospel, what he sees angers him because they've completely turned it into a marketplace, and he kicks over the tables, and he drives out the money changers, and so that's what the religious leaders are asking. Hey, who are you to be doing this? Who gave you this authority? In verse 3 of chapter 20, Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, the, the scribes and the priests had in their mind, look, we're going we're gonna to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Because if he says the authority to do these things comes from me, well, then he's discredited by his followers. If he says, oh, I don't have the authority to do this, then he's discredited by his followers either way. But Jesus turns the tables on them by asking them a question. Who gave John his authority? Because John proclaimed Jesus to be the Lamb of God, and so now they were on the horns of a dilemma. If we say, well, John's authority was from heaven, then you, you just heard what they said. Jesus will say, why don't you believe him about who I am? But if we denounce John, then the people will have our heads because they all believe Jesus is a Messiah. And then later in Luke's gospel, chapter 20, verses 9 through 19, he gives the parable of the wicked tenants. And in this parable, there's a wealthy landowner, and he has tenants on his vineyard. And the landowner sends his servants to collect the, the, the fruit of the vineyard, and the tenants murder his servants over and over and over again until finally the landowner says, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. But the tenants see the son of the landowner and say, if we kill him, we get the inheritance. And so that's what they do. In the parable, the landowner wipes out the tenants and gives his vineyard to another. And Luke tells us that the Pharisees knew or the religious leaders knew, Jesus is telling this about us. And then 
In verse 17 of Luke chapter 20, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Now, it's interesting, two things about this verse that he chooses. It's at the very end of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is at the very end of what's called the Egyptian Hallel. Uh, that's verse chapters 113 to 118. So those six chapters of the book of Psalm were very significant during Passover. Those were the songs that the Jewish people would sing during the season of Passover. More than likely at the end of the, or in the Gospels when they talk about Jesus being with His disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper, they were singing hymns. They were singing those psalms from Psalm 119 to 118. So he's quoting from the Egyptian Hallel. The reason it's called that is Hallel means praise. Egyptian, because it remembers their time, they, they associated those psalms with God's deliverance of His people from Egypt. And so every time this year, those were the psalms that they would sing. But at the very end of Psalm 118, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And what Jesus is saying is, you are rejecting me and I am the cornerstone. You're the builders, and the stone, me, is the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone in antiquity was the stone by which all levels and angles of the building had to align to be done correctly. And Jesus, basically what He's saying is, look, I am the new stone of the temple that God is building, and you builders have rejected me. And we know the conclusion of that argument. They were silenced. They could not challenge His authority. And then another group comes in, two other groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they question his integrity. Look at verse 20. So they, uh, speaking of the Pharisees and the Herodians, watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Verse 21, so they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful then for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Okay, let's talk about what's happening here. Keep in mind, the people in Jerusalem at that time, they don't have our perspective, right? You kind of know the story. You know Jesus is not a political leader, that Jesus doesn't intend to overthrow Rome, but not the case for many of the people there. They believed Him to be the Messiah, but their understanding of the Messiah was of a military nationalistic leader that was going to overthrow the shackles of Rome and put Israel in its top spot again. And so there's a lot of this nationalistic, militaristic fervor. They want Jesus to give the Romans their, uh, what's that word, comeuppance? And so these Pharisees and the Herodians, they're asking a great question. They think, again, we got Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Because if he says, oh, no, 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 you have to give tribute to Caesar, then he's lost all credibility. All these people will turn away from him, and it'll be a riot. But if he says, no, 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 forget Caesar, Rome will have him executed. So they think they have Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Look at verse 23. But Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Now, if you're familiar with those coins, it's kind of like our quarter. It would be George Washington. So you would have Caesar's impression, Caesar's image upon it. Verse 25, then he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, whatever's got Caesar's image on it, look, Caesar can have it back. 
but whatever has God's image on it, give that to God. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he had said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So the priests, the scribe, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they couldn't catch him. They were inspecting his authority, his integrity, and now this last group, the Sadducees, question his theology. And we know things are getting desperate for two reasons. Number one, look at verse 27 of Luke 20. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Okay, so what we have now is these are the, the theological liberals of the day. They don't believe in all this res- rising from the dead, brouhaha. Come on, that's silliness. So they don't even believe in the resurrection, and the question they're going to ask Jesus has everything to do with the resurrection. And then the illustration they use is even more absurd. Here it is, verse 28. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, in case you don't know, in their tradition there, that is if a man married a woman and he died without having children, it was the man's brother's responsibility to marry the widow and bear children for his dead brother so that his name could continue on in Israel and that his inheritance wouldn't be lost, right? So, in the illustration they have, well, let me read it, verse 29, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second, the third took her, and likewise, all seven left and had died and had no children. They want an absurd illustration, Right? Don't eat this woman's cooking, probably, was, the, would be, was what they were all thinking. And they say, Jesus, now, now in the eternal, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Ha! We got him, they're thinking. Listen to the way Jesus responds this. For this, I want you to go to Mark chapter 12. I, I like the way Mark is, has the same narrative, and the, what, what he chooses to emphasize is rich. So, Mark chapter 12, um, look at verse 23, you can see the question, the, the, the last question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? By the way, they don't even believe in the resurrection, but they're asking it anyway. For seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Okay, you got to think now. That's a low blow. These are the Sadducees, the theological liberals. They're enlightened. Who's this measly carpenter's son, this bastard child, telling us we don't know the Scriptures or the power of God? And then Jesus goes on to explain what life is like, that life in the, in the everlasting life is not the same as it is now. We're not married perpetually forever in eternity. That is a gift to humanity for now. But it's verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, since you brought that up, and notice how smart Jesus is. Have you not read in the book of Moses, the Sadducees only really accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the teaching of the resurrection? You don't see that in the Torah as much as you see it in the prophets. So Jesus knows where they're coming from. So he quotes the the book of Exodus. In the passage about the bush, Exodus chapter 3, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And in verse 27, he says, He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, why do I emphasize this? 
Jesus does not say, as He's quoting from Exodus, Jesus says, the Scriptures does not say that Yahweh said, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Jacob, I was the God of Isaac, as if because they're dead, there's no longer a relationship. But He goes to the very tense of the Hebrew verb and says, the Lord God said, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Jacob, I am the God of Isaac, because they live to this day. Down to the very tense of Scripture, God's Word is inerrant, infallible, and sufficient, and He shuts them down entirely. So much so, back in Luke chapter 20, verse 39 and 40, they said, well, well said, you've said everything well, we find no fault. They tried to trick Jesus to get Him to say something that was wrong, but Jesus passed every single test he answered them perfectly. And finally, in desperation, when they could find no fault in Him, they inspected Him, they challenged Him, they questioned Him, they could find no fault in Him, they sent Him to Pilate, the Roman governor. But look what Pilate says in Luke chapter 23. He says, so Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Herod says the same. Luke 23 verse 14 you have brought this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I have found no fault in him concerning those things of which you accuse him. The Jews couldn't find any fault in Jesus, so they sent him to the Romans who couldn't find any fault in Jesus. The lamb had been inspected, examined, and found perfect which is why Peter would write in 1 Peter 1, Jesus, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In the next chapter, he says, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. And not only was Jesus inspected like the Passover lamb was being inspected, he was crucified the same day the Passover lamb would be sacrificed at the same time at Passover. On Good Friday that we will be celebrating and remembering this Friday, at the same moment where the high priest sacrificed the Passover lamb in the temple, Jesus was being sacrificed on a hill called Golgotha. And He said, Tetelestai, it is finished. The final sacrifice that all sacrifices have pointed to has been accomplished. And there, Jesus died as the Lamb of God, quite possibly quite possibly on the very same location where Abraham said to Isaac in Genesis 22 that God would provide a lamb, not only to perfect to die for our sins, but all the sins of those who would put trust in Him. He is perfect, but the question is, is He perfect to you? The other day, I was walking through Target with my family, and I looked over at an end cap by one of the checkout lines, and sure enough, every Easter time, every Christmas time, on the cover of Newsweek magazine or Time magazine, there's a picture of Jesus. And I can tell you what the articles are. I don't have to look at them anymore. It's the same thing. We're still inspecting Him. We're still questioning His authority. We're still questioning His integrity, His goodness. We're still questioning whether or not He's right. 2,000 years have come and gone, and we're still asking the same questions. We're still challenging Him. Can He, is He my authority? And Jesus made it very clear. He is the authority of, he, all authority is given to Him. We're wondering, is He good? Does He have integrity? And the answer is yes. 
Is he right? Is he, does he have the knowledge of what happens after the grave? Does resurrection prove that? The question is, is he the perfect sacrificial lamb for you? The Jews couldn't find fault in him. Pilate, Herod couldn't find fault in him. This past week, I was listening to this um, R&B artist, Fred Hammond. This is a great album called Love Unstoppable. I was playing it all week. My family thought I was a different man because I don't typically play R&B in the house. But a great song called I Find No Fault in Him. And just, just singing R&B lyrics makes you want to, or just reading it makes you want to sing it. But, but these are the lyrics. It's on Spotify. You can look it up. I find no fault in him, Hammond sings. No fault at all. If you ask me, I'll tell you again and again. I find no fault in him. No fault in him, Jesus my Savior. I find no fault in him. Find no fault in him now. Worship him forever. That's what Revelation 5, 11, 12 tell us. John writes this, Then I looked and I heard, Around the throne... And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This last week of Jesus, this Passion Week, it's all about the Lamb. This very Sunday, When for thousands of years the Jews would be looking for the Passover lamb, we see him in the Gospels. Let me just close with a poem that most of you are probably familiar with, but a little bit of a tweak on it. Um, Mary's little lamb. Mary had a lamb. Mary had a little lamb. He was born on Christmas Day. She laid him in a manger bed to sleep upon the hay. Mary had a little lamb. His life was white as snow, and everywhere that God would lead, this lamb was sure to go. Mary had a little lamb, but he wasn't hers, you know. He was the very Son of God, the one who loves us so. He came to give us joy and peace and take away our sin. So when he knocks on your heart's door, be sure to let him in. Why do I love this precious lamb? What can the reason be? The answer is quite plain to see. It is because he first loved me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this Palm Sunday morning, looking at the gospel of Luke and, and remembering and remembering all that took place that Palm Sunday so long ago when our Lord walked into Jerusalem as the final Passover lamb ever necessary. And Lord, we thank you that because of what your Son has done, our sins are not simply just forgiven. That's just half the story. But the exact righteousness, the complete spotlessness of the lamb is given to our account. That's the gospel, Lord. Not simply that we've been forgiven of all the sin that we are and that we do, but all the righteousness of the Son is credited to our account. Lord, as we go through Passion Week, Lord, we pray that it won't be just a week like any other week. Lord, the Jews who are still looking for the Savior, shame us in the way they regard this week. We pray, Lord, we would walk through and think about all that Christ has done on our behalf so that when we gather on Good Friday, a terrible, horrible, good day, that it has significance for us today in our lives 2,000 years after Christ came. And we'll thank you for it in his name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.